At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now, here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. Our guest today is Dan Gregory. He is the founder of the Impossible Institute. He is a behavioral researcher and strategist, as well as an author, an educator, international speaker, and social commentator. He specializes in behaviors and belief systems, those things that drive, motivate, and influence us. He's one of the most respected voices in the industry and is a regular on ABC's Green Planet and has worked with some of the biggest brands in the world, including Coca-Cola, Unilever, Vodafone, MTV, and News LTD. And he's here today to talk with us about uh, many of the things that he's involved with, how it can help our businesses, and I'm just very excited to have him here to share his insights and expertise with us. Welcome to the show today, Dan. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be with you. Okay, you have written a book. I did not mention that in the intro because I knew we were going to talk about it. But you have written a book called Selfish, Scared, and Stupid. What do you mean by that, that we're all selfish, <laughs> scared, and stupid? <laughs> Should we continue talking? It's, yeah, it, it, it doesn't sound like a compliment, does it? It's, no. <laughs> um, my, I wrote the book with my business partner, Kieran, simply because what we realized was um, in business and, and even in, in life generally, we tend to deal with, with um, you know, ideal situations, our, our ideal perceptions about the way people should be behaving. And what we realized was we were actually missing an opportunity. Um, and in fact, what drives a lot of our initial decision-making, what drives a lot of our behavior, you know, what, what informs the choices that we make primarily is our survival brain. In other words, we act out of a, a survival instinct before you know, those higher cognitive functions are, are, are implemented. And what we realized was is if we frame our, our, our leadership, our communication, the way we, we look to engage our staff and our customers and, and our communities, if we frame that in terms, it, it, by, by, by taking the survival brain into account, we actually have a better chance of success. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that think before talking sort of uh, advice that you get from your parents when you're growing up. Uh, if, you, if you recognize that you're going to operate naturally out of this other state and you, you recognize that, you can actually temper it before you take an action or make a decision. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And what it's really about is, is how do we harness human nature rather than you know, constantly fighting against human nature, rather than constantly making ourselves and others wrong. How do we accept who we are, who they are, and how do we actually turn that into an asset that actually works for us? And right. selfish, scared, and stupid really talks to you know, those three primary, primary drives. You know, scared is all about you know, how, do we, how do we look to mitigate risk? You know, because we're all risk averse, we're all looking not to be exposed to either 
to, to danger that's either physical or, or even reputational, mm-hmm. where, where selfish talks about you know, self-interest. In other words, how do we frame what we're trying to get people to do in terms of what's in it for them, as opposed to just coming from a position of what we're trying to achieve? And, and stupid is really about, it's, it's, not, it's not actually saying that we're stupid. What it's saying is that, that human beings have a bias towards simplicity. Human beings have a bias towards ease. So how do we make things simple and easy to interact with in such a way that we create a bias towards success? And not just a bias towards success, but a bias away from failure. So it's, it's not really saying that, you know, in a really judgmental way that we're all, all selfish, scared and stupid. It's actually saying in a really accepting way that actually we're selfish, scared and stupid a lot of the time and we need to understand how to work with that. Okay, and and leverage it. In fact, you mentioned uh, very briefly the who. What do you mean by start with the who? What what do you mean by that? Well, one of the things we look at is the fact that all human behavior or or, or everything that we decide to do is, is at some point driven by our sense of identity. In other words, who we think we are as a human being determines a lot of our, well, not just the actions that we take, but it, it determines the lenses and the filters through which we perceive reality. Yes. So an identity, you know, you know, that might be, you know, very, you know, basic fundamental things like gender or age or generation, even things like nationality. I mean, clearly you can hear from my accent that, you know, I have a different uh, national identity to yourself. Um, yes. And those things inform a lot of the decisions that we make. In other words, we make a decision out of who we think we are. In other words, we, we try to be congruent with our sense of identity. And that's why, you know, getting people to change behavior can be so difficult because it doesn't just, you know, we're not just, you know, evaluating the behavior at, a, at an intellectual or a logical level. We're actually, you know, deciding, well, hang on, does this, does, does this reaffirm my identity or does this challenge my identity? And we see that play out in all sorts of ways. So if, if someone thinks of themselves as being, you know, incredibly generous and incredibly giving, then they've got, they're going to have a different response to someone in the street asking, you know, asking them to give money to charity over the festive season than someone who's not. So, so again, we, 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 we filter the way we behave out of who we think we are. And in fact, if you're able to align a desired course of behavior, with someone's identity, you increase the chances of success greatly. Hmm. Well, and for our audience listening today who are primarily business owners, what you just said uh, carries a lot of weight and would have a lot of bearing on their relationships with their customers, with their employees, with uh, well, and with their sales staff really relating to their customers and closing a sale. There are so many applications of that, that information. Oh, absolutely. And if you, th- if you think about how we, we, we relate to brands and how we relate to products. You know, we define ourselves very much by the, the organizations we interact with and the brands that we use. I mean, if you, even if you look at, a, a, you know, the campaign, you know, I'm a PC and I'm a Mac, you know, that was a great demonstration of how people feel about identity in relationship to, to different companies and different, and different products. You know, people, you know, define themselves not on, well, mine has more functionality or mine has a particular... Um, uh, you know, kind of functional benefit or utilitarian benefit. You know, we define it by, well, how does it define me as a person? Am I, you know, the, the kind of more, the, the more corporate, you know, PC or am I a little bit more creative Mac? And those kind of subtleties really play into what builds brand success and ultimately what builds business success. 
Right. Let's talk about your firm. It's got a great name, the Impossible Institute. Does it really focus on making the impossible happen? Yeah, one of the things that we um, that, that we decided when we were naming the business is we have a methodology called asking an impossible question. And that really informed the name of the business. Because what we've found is oftentimes it's, we don't just struggle to find new answers. We actually struggle to ask questions that are challenging enough. You know, and what, what, what a question does is it actually provides the context into which you can work. And so we have this methodology around asking an impossible question. So let me give you a couple of quick examples just to make it tangible. Sure. So we, we, um, we were working with, a, um, with one of the, uh, the big banking corporations in Australia. And, um, you know, there's, there's four big banks in, in, in Australia, and, and they pretty much hold all of the banking business in the country. And as a result, they're, they're very big. They have a lot of customers. And one of the things that they find difficult is customer service. You know, how do you service such a big cohort? And one of the issues they came to us with was we've got so many customer inquiries, we've got so many people calling in that there's almost zero chance you won't be put on hold um, in, in the course of that call. And people obviously don't like being put on hold. So the impossible question we asked for them was, what would it take for people to want to be put on hold? Hmm. And, you know, because, I mean, most of, their, most of their efforts have been spent in, well, how do we reduce hold times? How do we make, you know, our customer service, you know, uh, processes more, more efficient? And we said, well, actually, right. how, do we make, how do we make being on hold more enjoyable? So we've, we've looked at a couple of different strategies, including gamification. So if you're on hold for five minutes, you might earn um, a voucher for a, a free coffee. At a, at a coffee chain, or it might be some other, some other kind of gift that you earn based on the time you've been on hold. So in other words, if you, if you get to four minutes 30, at that point you're thinking, well, I hope I'm on hold for five minutes, because actually there's a reward. Mm-hmm. The other, one of the other strategies we looked at is we're having conversations with one of the, uh, the big recording labels in Sydney, and we're looking at getting all of their artists to record unplugged versions of their songs. And the only place you can hear those songs is in the on hold music. Wow. So we're actually, we're actually looking at, well, how would you create an environment where people would actually call up deliberately to be put on hold? Yeah, and you, just, what, you just can't conceive of that, yeah. <laughs> well, what it does is, it, is, is by asking the question, it challenges your limitations because most of our limitations are imagined. You know, and we, we tend to live in very, you know, a very confined bandwidth in terms of what's possible. And so, we, you know, we developed this methodology around impossible questions. You know, another example was, you know, is it possible to create a restaurant that has no menu and no mm-hmm. food? And oh, no my. Food in the, no, no, no food in the refrigerator, no food in the pantry. And, and what that allowed us to do was to conceive of possibilities that, that most people would thought, thought would be impossible. So, you know, there's now a restaurant that exists in a, a – in, it, it's got uh, two master chefs that are housed in the middle of a fresh food market. So you go and you buy your fresh food, you bring it to the chefs. There's no menu, they, pro- they produce the food, uh, they pro- rather produce a meal with the food that you bring them. Um, and so there's, there's no menu, there's no set menu, there's no food storage. And, oh, and the other thing is there's no food wastage right. because they're only preparing based on what you bring them. Right. But again, that only exists on the other side of, of an impossible question. And it all came back to, so Kira and I were talking about, we were both 
you know, math nerds in, in high school. You know, she was she was good at maths and, and, and I was I was pretty good at maths too. And we were talking about the fact that up until you know, sort of early high school, people say to you, uh, oh, there's a kind of a number that you can, you cannot take the square root of. You know, you can't take a neg- uh, the square root of a negative number. Right. And then, then when you sort of get part of the way through high school, they go, actually, we're going to let the, <laughs> the square root of negative one equal I or, uh-huh. or J if you're doing electronical engineering. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, by accepting that impossible premise, a whole lot of mathematics becomes possible. And what we realized is that was reflected in everywhere we work, that we've got so many, you know, expectations that are, that are you know, and some of those expectations are based on our past experience, but ultimately they're, they're limited because, we, you know, we're only looking in a particular area. And when you, you look, you know, to, to, be, to be more innovative in your business, when you're looking to do new product development or new service design, having a capacity to look broader than where you have been before is actually critical. Do you have exercises or do you have – how do you take your clients through the process of arriving at things like an on-hold system that only plays these songs that you can only hear there or, or, or these restaurants that have no food or menus? <laughs> how, do, how do you get to that? How do, you, how do you get to that point with your clients? Well, it's, you know, it's sort of you know, um, been a process of, of um, developing tools over time that allow people to access, you know, creativity. I mean, one of, one of the biggest issues we've found is that, in, in, particularly in the corporate world, which is where we've worked for the past, you know, 25, 30 years, is that we, 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 we've, we've spent 50 years beating the creativity out of our people. We, we needed a very, uh, you know, a workforce that was very good at producing predictable um, um, routine results. And as we've moved into a more creative age, as we've, you know, as the digital revolution has changed the way we do business, we actually need to be a lot better at problem solving and a lot more flexible and agile in the way that we, we, we work in business, work with our teams, work with our, our customers. And so what we've, we've looked to do is develop tools that allow people who don't think of themselves as being creative to be creative. Because one of the, one of the biggest barriers we've found is, is let's say, you know, you're an organization and you invite me to come in and work on your business to make, you know, to make your team more innovative or, or, to, or to develop a new product or service. Mm-hmm. Typically, you know, we, you know we, we get the post-it notes, we get the colored markers and we all divide up and we have creativity exercises and, you know, we have a great time and we get to the end of the day and typically, you know, we've, you know, we've done something terrific and it's all, you know, put up on, 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 on pages on the, on, hanging on the walls and then those pages get folded up and never get looked at again. And yes. you have this this almost almost an entertaining day, and certainly a team building day, but there's no tangible result at the end. And mm-hmm. what we've realised is just telling people to be creative, just telling people to think outside the box, just telling people to to look for new opportunities is a really difficult ask. I mean, it's almost like saying to someone, you know, say something funny. <laughs> you know, that's right. that's really challenging. That's re- I mean, I was a stand-up comedian for three years, travelling around the world. <laughs> And I still find that a really challenging question to be asked. Um, and, uh, and so what we've realized is rather than giving people um, uh, exercises that are so broad that it, 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 it challenges them and, it, and, and shuts them down mm-hmm. by being really you know, constrained and looking in really specified areas, the more specific we can be in the question that we ask, the more opportunity that they have to go 
to you know to go a little bit wild and explore what's possible. Mm-hmm. So again, we, ha- we we tend to start with a question. One of, one of the great things of about starting with a question, which is not the way most organisations think about, you know, a creative brief. Most most people will start a a creative brief or a, or a design brief or a business brief with a proposition. You know, they say we need to create a system that makes customer service more efficient. And right. and and the problem is that's a closed statement. There's only so many places you get to look. Whereas asking a question opens up possibilities. So so there's a big difference between saying, you know, we need to build a bridge and saying, how can we get across a river? You know, one closes yes. possibilities and only, only, you know, allows for one solution, whereas the other allows for multiple solutions and interesting opportunities. So I think that's, that's probably the most powerful thing we do is to pull people out of being too proposition-led and into a more questioning mindset, which is actually really, really important in terms of, of, of accessing opportunities where we're not looking. The other thing that we found is, is, is making sure that your team is incredibly diverse. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we, know that, we know that diversity is important. You know, there's some, some great studies, you know, done by people like MIT that found that the more, the more diverse a group is and the more openly they collaborate, the higher the collective IQ. And we tend to think of things like, you know, um, ethnic diversity or gender diversity or diversity of sexuality. And all of those things are incredibly important, but diversity is actually more diverse than just those, those three categories. And what diversity really gives us mm-hmm. is, is, is it gives us access to points of view we wouldn't have otherwise. And what we've found is, if you, if you, if you have a look at the American Trademark Office, you know, the vast majority of innovations that have been developed over the past 50 to 100 years have actually come from people who were either outside the industry that the innovation happened in or were in an industry that was tangential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what the diversity does is it allows us to find um, or to see problems from a different point of view. So an example of that is the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, England which is a terrific hospital, some of the best medical staff on the planet, but they had a problem transferring people from the operating theatre to the recovery ward. They had, a, they had an error rate that was unacceptable. And one of the things they did that was really terrific was instead of just having their medical staff, instead of just having doctors and nurses and, and process people working on, on the issue, they invited in people from outside their industry, people who were experts at doing fast critical, accurate transitions. So the person who actually saved, solved the, the transition problem for them wasn't actually a medical expert at all. It was the, right. the, formula, um, the, the pit crew boss from Ferrari's Formula One racing team. You know, it, someone when, who was an expert. Sorry, go yeah. on. It, no, and when you think about it, it makes perfect sense that somebody like that would, be, would have the answer to, to that challenge. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense, but unless you, like you say, allow yourself to step outside of those boundaries, they would have never invited this person in. So just, just amazing things when you really stop and you know, step back and, and think more broadly, as you had said earlier. What are some of the branding mistakes that you see small business owners make um, especially in startup stage, and how, what can they do differently so that their brands can stand the test of time, like these other iconic okay. brands that you work with? Yeah, two things. I'll start with a mistake and, and, then, and then finish with an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think the mistake that most small businesses make, and you know, we spend a lot of time working with small businesses, and um, I think one of the, 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 the biggest mistakes they make is they try to look 
like they belong in the industry. And one of the problems with that is you end up looking exactly like your competition. Uh, you end up having a brand. You end up having livery. You end up having service design. You end up having and you know, experiences that, that end up being category generic. And that actually costs you. If, if there's one thing that a small business can do to punch above their weight, it's to stand out from everyone else and, and have something that's distinctive, have an offering that's, that's unique. So look for, you know, what are those nowhere else experiences that you build into your offering, that you build into the way that you deal with customers that actually makes people want to tell a story about you? Because our, our, our brand, you know, we tend to think about brand as being a logo or, or you know, yes. a catchphrase or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But our brand, you know, in, in our opinion, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And I think if we're able to build experiences that are unique enough that people want to tell stories about, people want to tweet about or, or share stories about on social media, I just had this amazing experience with an accountant. It was unlike any experience I've had with an accountant or a lawyer or, or, or a, you know, a contractor. You know, if, if you build those unique experiences, you actually allow people, you give, some, you give people ammunition in a, in, in a way that allows them to refer you to their friends in a really distinctive way. Right. So I think that's probably the, the biggest mistake we see is people, you know, trying to look like the rest of the industry or, or trying to, to please everyone. And that okay. kind of leads me to that kind of leads me to the opportunity. And I think the opportunity is to um, is to be really specific about who it is that you love better than anyone else. You know, who is your who is your target customer that no one's paying quite the amount of attention attention to that you can. And an, an example of that is we were working with a photography school and, um, and you know, we said to this, the owner of the photography school, well, what kind of photography do you teach? And she said, I'll teach you any kind of photography you want to learn. She said, I'll teach you landscape photography. I'll teach you portraiture. I'll teach you boudoir photography. And, you know, whatever your thing is, I'll teach you that kind of photography. And we said, okay, well, well how's business? And she said, well, it's a little bit tough. And we said, well, we're not surprised because at the moment you're just a generic photography school. Mm-hmm. And so we sat down with him and he said, listen, you know, what if, what kind of photography do you love personally? If you could only teach one kind of photography for the rest of your life, what would it be? And she said, you know what, I love taking amazing photos of kids. And so we reframed the way she, she talks about her business and, in fact, you know, what her entire business model is. All she does now is she teaches new and expecting parents how to take amazing photos of their babies and their toddlers. Wow. And, That's really and if niche. you think about it, it, it really is. But her business is booked out. You know, mm-hmm. she, goes to, she, she goes to mother's groups, which are incredibly networked in terms of how they share information. She goes to maternity wards and hands out flyers. She goes to stores where they sell, you know, uh, prams and, and nappies and, you know, those kids stores. And so what she's done is she, she loves that cohort better than anyone else does. And again, what she's done is she's allowed people to refer that business. Because you, if, if you're the parent of a, of a daughter who's expecting a child, well, that's a really easy gift to give. So she's actually figured out, you know, that, that the photography that she loves doing more than anyone else, anything else actually allows her to offer a greater quality of service than just a generic, you know, here's how you take a photograph, here's how you frame a picture, you know. So by, by loving someone else, you actually build your own distinctiveness. Yes. 
Yes, I mean this is just so fascinating. All the things that you, the examples that you have given, uh, they just seem so logical once you say them. But there, you know, people can spend decades trying to come up with some of these things. But the process that you take them through really allows these breakthrough kinds of ideas to live and you know give them life. So you, you've been a wealth of information today. For those who would like to find out more about you and the Impossible Institute, what's the best place to find out about that? Uh, well, they can just read about us at theimpossibleinstitute.com, um, and we have a, a, a free newsletter to uh, we you know we, we we that comes out roughly monthly. Don't hold us to that, um, but you know they can they can subscribe to that and you know get get access to our latest thinking. Okay, so theimpossibleinstitute.com. Go out there and read more about Dan. Uh, sign up for the newsletter, and I just think it would be great uh, to once a month have even a subject line come across my email that says the impossible institute i mean what a lift just to read that and think what little nuggets are are sitting in there that might change my day might change my month or might change my life you know so uh, sign up for that at the impossible institute.com dan thank you so much for being on the show today we really appreciate having you here oh thank you kelly This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.